0: I'm Eileen Donne, and this is The God Slot.
1: Much is being made of differences of opinion that are appearing on various questions. We shall, no doubt, have sharply contrasting proposals coming up at every stage in our discussions. There was this wide cleavage of opinion on how
2: Catholic truth regarding the revelation of God... Should be presented to our own people and to those outside the church.
3: Et dei omnipotentis patris et filii, et spiritus sancti descendat super vos et maniat
4: sempre.
0: And there you heard the litany chanted at the opening of the Second Ecumenical Vatican Council on October the 11th, 1962, 50 years ago, next Thursday. You also heard the voices of Dublin's Archbishop McQuaid, Cardinal Heenan of England, and the much loved Pope John the 23rd. To commemorate this momentous event in the life of the Catholic Church, we're joined tonight by Margaret McCartan, probably one of Ireland's best known nuns, Father Enda MacDonough, one of our best known theologians, and from Jerusalem former Chief Rabbi of Ireland and Papal Knight Dr David Rosen. We were to be joined by former Head of News at RTE Des Fisher but he is sadly indisposed and if you're listening tonight Des, our best wishes to you and your family. Stepping manfully into the breach is Press Ombudsman John Horgan who was religious affairs correspondent at the Irish Times from 1962 to 1972 and who attended the final session of Vatican II and the first Synod of Bishops after that. Now, among the latest books, looking back at the Council is Reaping the Harvest and one of its co-authors, Dr Jim Corkery S.J., who's away lecturing on the subject at the moment, spoke to producer Jerry McCardle about the challenges of the Council.
1: I'd say the promise of the Council was not in, by any means, every detail fulfilled. Things one would have hoped for in terms of greater lay participation in the life of the Church, greater involvement of women particularly, ecumenical strides, they seem to have fallen back a bit rather than gone forward. The council texts gave you strong reasons because of its beautiful depiction of the Church as a communio, of all persons together, believers who are equal, equal because of their common baptism, then contributing, and we can't see that that's exactly what we have now.
3: When John the Twenty Third took over the papacy, and the, the council really came from his vision, yes, the Catholic Church was a very suspicious organisation. It was suspicious of the world. The world was rotten, really, you know. And we had to keep that at arm's length, and we had to keep uh, lay people at arm's length. His vision was, was for a different kind of church, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was. The interesting thing about John the Twenty Third, you know, everybody remembers, that lovely smiling farmer. Um, he seemed rather simple, but I would say he was an extremely astute reader of the signs of the times, and also he was a very astute historian. This was the late fifties, early sixties. The world was changing rapidly you know, think of air travel, think of the end of colonialism, you know, in many countries, think of uh, technical and uh, developments, think of space travel and so on, think of the political situation. I mean, this man knew that the church had somehow become out of touch with people's lives, and he had two adjectives that were predominant in his mind for how the council should be, pastoral and ecumenical. They're the opposite of hiding behind being defensive, staying at home, not dialoguing, to be pastoral is to be caring towards and open to others. Remember also he spoke about applying not the medicine of severity, but um, of mercy, I think it was, and ecumenical. I mean, from the outset he wanted the council, I mean, to take into account, as they were known at the time, as the separated brethren. So um, this is very difficult to not see as a big attitudinal change, vis-à-vis a defensive posture, um, that was indeed the way the Church had been certainly since Vatican I. Maybe for good historical reasons, but um, John the Twenty-third knew it was time to change it. And as you said, it, the Council came from him. It didn't only come from an idea that he got. It actually came, he believed, from an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he felt bound to follow that. It wasn't entirely unthinkable that there would have been a council at the time. You know, Vatican I had ended uh, hastily. I mean, Pius XII had thought about whether there should be another council, maybe to finish the other one. It hadn't been complete on the Church. It had only deal, dealt with the papacy. So the question was in the air. But John the Twenty-Third made it quite clear that we weren't going for a council, which was to finish a previous council. It wasn't Vatican One and a Half; and a half. It was Vatican full-blown Two at a time in history which he knew was a very sensitive time.
0: Dr. Jim corcory SJ. Dr. Rosen, if I can bring you in here. Um, there had been previously the decree on the Jews, which didn't achieve what it maybe set out to do, but then came Nostra Aetate, which set out to deal with relations with all non-Christian faiths, including Jews, and which was passed and promulgated by Pope Paul VI. What were relations like up to that, and how did they change afterwards?
3: Well, yes, as you say, um, it was a rather turbulent process that led to the eventual promulgation of Nostra Aetate, and there were a lot of opposing forces within uh, the Council not only from the Arab world that was concerned how this would impact upon the political context and that would be seen as some kind of political statement in relation to the Israeli-Arab conflict, but from many elements within the church who were not at all comfortable about uh, a new perspective on a brotherly fraternal relationship with the Jewish people or affirming the the Jewishness of Jesus, let alone the idea that God had not rejected the Jewish people and replaced them with the church, this seemed to be... uh, almost as it were a betrayal of normative catholic teaching so there were some very strong forces opposing it and it was the force of certain individuals of course essentially the spirit of john the 23rd himself and the determination with which he mandated cardinal augustin Baer to be able to move this particular Um, issue forward in relation to the Jews that ultimately ensured its triumph. But as you correctly indicate, it was only able to do that by putting it as a clause, in fact, clause number four, within a broader document, which is very important in terms of the relationship with the church and other religions. And while I think... And it's not for me to say, but as an outside observer, I think it's an enormously important document for the whole Church's relationship with the faith world. It's interesting in terms of discussion until now, even in the initial presentations, and even in Dr. Corcoran's presentation, the term ecumenism has been used in a rather limited fashion. Indeed, the Vatican Ecumenical Council is its name, right? But then that meant ecumenical within the context of the Catholic Church. Then ecumenism comes a term to mean the world, a Christian world. It's still used within a, a restrictive sense, and not truly meaning the whole oikumen, the whole of the of the cosmos in itself. And Nostra Aetate starts bringing the Church into an understanding and engagement with the broader world at large, and is enormously important in that context. And of course it's not the only Second Vatican Council document to be able to address that. But Clause 4 that deals with the relationship with the Jewish people is nothing short of revolutionary. In many ways, the brilliance of Nostra Aetate had to wait for John Paul II to find its full expression. And it was, of course, part of the brilliance of the charisma of John uh, Paul II that he understood that we are live in a world of images and of the power of images. And in his visit to the synagogue in 1986 and in his visit to Israel uh, in the year uh, 2000 for his pilgrimage to the Holy Land, the transfer, the, the uh, expression, the internalization, the understanding within the Catholic world and beyond of the enormous transformation that had taken place uh, as a result of the Second Vatican Council and the promulgation of Nostra Aetate became Evident there 's no question that, as far as Catholic Jewish relations are concerned, this is an enormous success story.
0: okay, David, Thank you for the moment. John. What was your sense of it at the time covering it that final session
2: um, well, it was I was only twenty four uh, when I went out there. I was uh, a typical product of uh, a Catholic middle class Irish education, uh, which you after you learned the catechism, you really didn't learn very much. We had a religious education teacher whose idea of religious education was to turn over the pages of the Acts of the Apostles and read them to us in class time. So it was a total earth-shattering uh, intellectual and emotional experience, I think, for me. There's a, a huge difficulty in this country specifically because whether you talk about the religious world, about the cultural world, about the global world, for us in Ireland... This was all one and the same thing. Our religious world was, for the most of us, the Catholic world. Uh, after the council, uh, when ecumenism was very much the vogue, there was a kind of travelling circus of people like myself and Sean McRaeman and Canon Grace Stack from the Church of Ireland. And we'd go around to places and have public meetings And people would turn up out of sheer curiosity because they had never seen or heard a Protestant in their own locality open their mouths before. Uh, So there there were these huge cultural um, uh, obstacles to overcome before we even began to get to grips with the kind of thing with ecumenism in the fullest sense, in the sense of not just the other Christian religions but non-Christian religions, and then the whole ecumene, the whole inhabited world. So we were very self-contained and... While this was strength for some people, it was a huge difficulty for others.
0: And as a journalist in Rome, did you feel welcomed at this all-clerical affair? Did, did you get that sense of them opening up?
2: Well, of course, the, the thing about Rome was that it wasn't an all-clerical affair. The the, the the differences between us all, uh, clerical lay, theologians, non-experts, journalists, you know, these all melted I can remember having a ferocious argument uh, in a a pavement cafe outside St. Peter's once involving Jack Dowling, a uh, well-known television producer here, about some abstruse element of theology. And as one of the persons present uh, left and had to go off to something, Jack said, who was that? And uh, somebody said, well, that was Bishop So-and-so. And And Bishop So-and-so had been dressed in an open-deck shirt, and his his bishop status was totally invisible. And Jack was Astonished, he said, they should wear bells around their necks so <laughs> that we can recognize. It. But there was this sense of it didn't matter who you were, where you came from, clerical or lay, you know, the conversation rolled on.
4: There probably weren't too many women, though. No, I was in Rome actually the year, the preparatory year for Vatican II, studying there. And uh, it was a Rome that was full of kind of flapping soutans and long clothed, uh, veiled uh, women, the sisters seem to be forever a kind of a clerical church And the kind of open-necked bishop that John describes was very, very far from any experience that I remember. Uh, And I think that uh, that's one of the things that, as a historian, I realised about the last 50 years, that we were totally overcome, drunk, in fact, by the images of this splendid church. Um, You know, the opening services, these bishops in their extraordinary robes, the Pope in his wonderful vestments, all these pomp and and uh, glory and incense-carrying uh, young men who surrounded him, and that that seemed to us the church. Whereas in the last 50 years, uh, what has really emerged is... Um, A very ordinary church, you know, where if you go to Mass in Belgium or if you go to Mass in uh, Kenya, uh, you see lay people very often in their work clothes or in their clean work clothes uh, officiating at the Mass in a way that you couldn't have imagined uh, 50 years ago. Talk to me about the liturgical changes, Father Enda.
5: Well, in a way, they were the ones that made the quickest and sharpest impact because, above all, they're the ones that um, people were... Most involved with. I mean, Sunday Mass suddenly came to you in English. You know, people were encouraged and did participate in prayers of the faithful, eventually in Eucharistic ministers, and so on. All that was quite extraordinary uh, it, to people like me who um, had been saying Mass in Latin for more than, for about 15 years. My granny was
0: distraught. She couldn't say her rosary anymore. (laughs)
5: Yes, that was the other thing, you know, (laughs) that the rosary went, by the way, and, you know, (laughs) and they, Cushing had a line about it that it was great, he said, but on the other hand, Cardinal Cushing of Boston, he said, and I understand he said that the men who kneel at the back of the church, he said, they began to look at leaflets and take more uh, interest, but after a while, they got kind of bored, too, and went back to picking their noses. So It wasn't transformative in terms of the heart or involvement for everybody, naturally, but it was a very significant... Uh, but it didn't somehow then go beyond that. I, I think in in many ways it did, you know, but it it didn't seem to me to issue into, on the one hand any deeper sense of prayer for most of us, you know, or on the other hand, for any deeper sense of mission. One of the nice, there were nice things, though. For instance, it was very small but very simple, and that was the changing of the sacrament of anointing, which was really a kind of getting you ready for death sacrament, to the sacrament of healing which, you know, applied at a whole range of levels for people. And, you know, you didn't have to be, as it were, terminally ill to receive the sacrament of healing. Now, the sacrament of healing was also, of course, part of the whole healing mission of the Church. Interestingly, while that sacrament (laughs) increased in numbers and in depth, I think, the sacrament of confession, about which we have been talking, declined spectacularly. Once you got, in English the penitential rite in the Mass, people didn't see the same kind of need for private confession because the whole Mass itself was a kind of a healing and reconciling event, and they didn't see the need for that. One good thing that did happen as well, the, that the Mass became not so much the uh, recall or representation of the death of Christ, But it included the resurrection and was a community event.
0: Margaret, you wanted to come back to the notion of globalisation.
4: Globalisation really focused the church on uh, parts of the world where it was young, vibrant, very different culturally. And maybe as Enda was talking there, I was uh, speculating that perhaps we concentrated a kind of navel-gazing too much on the English-speaking church And in fact, the exciting things were happening in Latin America, the whole liberation theology that came up so rapidly, the uh, inability of a European-centred Vatican to be able to even understand uh, the 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 wonderful cultural expressions that were coming from the south and i think that to me is the biggest change in the last 50 years that the uh, south somehow is where vitality is where innovation where creativity is where they're not bothered about issues of uh, sexual abuse or uh, procreation, you know, that it's a whole different world that is struggling with justice and with the uh, man's inhumanity to man and indeed women's inhumanity as well to women, uh, if you could put it like that. And that um, this idea like that, there is a a kingdom of peace and justice and uh, of uh, following the Beatitudes actually lived out in parts of the world Now,
0: unfortunately, time is catching up with us, so I want to come to each of you for a final comment. Do you think or do you get a sense now that there's a rowing back and how do you see the future? David, can I bring you in first?
3: With pleasure, even though it's rather presumptuous of me to comment in this regard, especially with my esteemed colleagues uh, here to be able to give their insights. But um, it seems to me that we are at a particular stage Where uh, the interpretation of Vatican II is now uh, a matter of significant debate. But there is a difference between the liberal segment within the church and the conservative segment within the church the latter wishing to emphasise, to portray Vatican II as a continuity of the Church, uh, to embrace John the XXIII's use of the term aggiornamento, updating, to indicate that there is just, if you like, an amelioration or an introduction into a new reality of the age-old institution and its particular teaching, as opposed to those who view Vatican II as a caesura, as a rupture, in which there was a radical transformation in terms of the Church's self-understanding and its relationship. Again, if I may come back to my own hobby horse, the irony of this is is that one of the few issues that completely unites uh, the Conservatives and the Liberals is the attitude towards the Jews. Uh, and that both conservatives and liberals see it as important to have a positive relationship with the Jewish community and the value of Catholic-Jewish dialogue. But there's a different approach. One the liberal approach I call a horizontal approach, which is we have to open up our embrace to the world at large, and the Jews are the first immediate close to us in terms of our own particular history, and therefore they're the first in the embrace. But it's not a qualitative difference. Whereas the conservative approach, if you like, which I call the the vertical approach, is that there's only one true church in effect, even though we've got to be a little more accommodating towards the rest of the world, they're all into some degree in uh, some uh, of error to a greater or lesser degree. but uh, the Jews are the roots of the church, and therefore there is relationship with the Jews, which is unlike
5: any other kind of relationship.
0: Father Ender, how do you see it? It would seem to me that
5: the the labels we adopt, like liberals or progressives and conservatives, are a bit uh, confusing, because the developments in the church itself that are sometimes seen as the most radical were based on what was called by various theologians and by the pope himself the resourcement, returning to the very earliest uh, uh, roots of the church. In, in biblical terms, in, in tradition, uh, historical tradition terms, and so on. So that the liturgical renewal, for example, began with very conservative people going back to the early history and discovering what we then took into the community meal, the, the use of the vernacular, all these things that came in, dropping many of the accretions and additions and so on. And this applied more widely so that the two... Kind of ideas that came out of the John the twenty third vision of going back to the sources that's a very conservative and properly conservative because you have to return both to the Jewish people and to Jesus Christ in order to be true or authentic. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have to confront the modern world, and that was the aggiornamento of it. Now, I think how people mix these is part of what of the division we have. But the second problem is who has the power? And it seems to me that one of the great weaknesses of the contemporary church is that it's still seen in many ways as a power game by the people who have allegedly the power in the name of Christ and by the gift of the Holy Spirit and so on. But that power is too easily a political, worldly power and is not the kind of, service ministry that Jesus embodied and that the saints and all the best people in the church.
4: Marcus? If you listen hard, you certainly can hear things growing, uh, such as uh, the um, growing understanding, you know, that the, uh, the, the world is in crisis from the point of view of environment and that the church is really... Not participating in that in any great uh, dramatic sense. And part of the explanation for that, of course, is what Enda has just said, that they're so busily engaged at the top in power games that they're not actually hearing the grass grow. Uh, The other thing that's very interesting, because I think it is a valley period, is that vocations have dropped. And um, I hope I'm not being arrogant, but uh, it seems to me that the kind of vocations that are coming into the seminaries uh, don't seem to be those ones that will have the leadership qualities, say, of uh, Bishop Charles Borromeo after the uh, Council of Trent and these extraordinary uh, lay people that emerged like Vincent de Paul.
0: Final brief word to the layman.
2: I think the greatest break on the embodiment of what happened to Vatican II in the Church has been, over most of the years since then, uh, an unnecessary and misplaced worship of the Church itself by those people who are most involved at the top of it.
0: There we have to leave it. Sincere thanks to John, to Margaret McCartan, to Father Enda McDonough, and in Jerusalem to Rabbi David Rosen for a very stimulating discussion. Uh, Rabbi Rosen, can we say, hach sameach for the Feast of Tabernacles, and thank you for joining us from Jerusalem.
3: Thank you very much indeed. God bless you all.
0: Before we go, on Tuesday night at a quarter past ten on RTE1 television, Gay Byrne returns with the first of a new series of The Meaning of Life and an extended special in which the former president, Mary McAleese, talks with remarkable candour. We'd also like to send our congratulations to Most Reverend Dr Richard Clarke, who's been elected Church of Ireland, Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of All-Ireland. Congratulations too to Michael Kelly, who's become the new editor of the Irish Catholic Newspaper. Listeners are always welcome to comment. Our phone number is 01 208 2039. Our email address, godslot at rte.ie. And the postal address is the godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday at the same time with our more usual mixed bag. So good evening, I gotta oh, I gotta Because i got to have faith, i got to have